All right. Uh, I'm here with Thurman Gifford, my uncle, Thomas Lee Gifford, my dad, and Jimmy Gifford, my other uncle. Uh, also, my mom's sitting in the background and didn't want me to announce her. She's waving her hands no, and uh, she's probably going to be audibly laughing soon. So, um, Dad or Thur uh, Jimmy, excuse me, had a story he wanted to tell, and he drugged Dad and Thurman in here with him. So I, I assume it concerns them. These all are sons of Jesse and Chester Gifford. So, Uncle Jimmy, it's your show. The one I'm going to tell don't necessarily involve him. Uh, matter of fact, I might have a couple. Uh, one was uh, one time when uh, my grandfather, uh, my dad's dad, Mac, was, uh, he'd always come and get me and my brother a lot of times and take us fishing. Me and Tom are pretty close together in age, and he'd pick us up, carry us down to Low Freight Creek or down on a bar pit somewhere fishing, and one day I went, and somehow, for some reason or other, I ended up being with them by myself, my grandpa and grandma. My grandma, she'd catch fish, and she kept them. It didn't matter what size it was. If it was a little bitty brim, she kept it and fried it. And uh, grandpa, he went after the big fish. Uncle Bill had bought grandpa a rod and reel, first one he ever had besides his uh, spinning reel, his first spinning reel he ever had. He, was real proud of it. Grandma was sitting on the bucket up there fishing for brim and doing pretty good actually. And I'd go back and forth between Grandpa and Grandma. He was down under the bridge fishing for bass or whatever he'd catch with that reel he had. He, uh, I walked down there where he was at and he said, Jim, you want to try this out? I said, yeah, I'll try it out. He said, well, I'm going to take a break and go up and check on Bessie a minute. And uh, I took the reel and standing there, and he started up the bank. I said, I don't know whether I can do this or not. He said, I'll just give it a shot. You can't tear it up. And I backed up and threw it, and it was a perfect throw. went all the way across the, the creek. It was a low freight creek. and went all the way across the creek and landed under a, a sweet ground tree root that was sticking out over the water. Soon as it hit the water, a bass hit it, and he's about halfway up the bank, and he stumbled all the way back down the bank to get to where I was at. And I said, "Here, take it." And he said, "Nope, you caught him. You're gonna get him in." And I reeled it in. He finally waited out there in the water and finished getting him in. It was about a seven-pound bass, and uh, that was just a real good experience that I had with my my grandpa and grandma fishing. And, of course, he, he went back, he dropped Grandma off to clean the fish at home at Lono, and we went on down to Brush Creek to the store where we weighed the fish. He had to go in and weigh it and show it to everybody at the store there. And then we went on down and showed it to everybody at the house where we were, where I lived. And uh, I don't remember who cleaned that fish, but it was just a real nice experience. And uh, I'll let Tom turn talk a minute. <laughs> or we're having to shift microphones around because I did not anticipate groups being in here, so pardon the disturbance. Go ahead, Tom. I got them stored. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funniest thing is, Thurman, the funniest thing that I can remember about my dad is um, he was a, a Baptist preacher, preached off and on. Sometimes he would pastor the church down at uh, Brush Creek, and uh, most of the time he'd fill in. He didn't feel called to, to preach, I think, as a as a um, pastor of a church, but more as a teacher and a and a preacher uh, on call. But what he liked most of all, I think, was to talk about the Bible. He could quote half the Bible. Uh, Verse, you know, verbatim, and uh, he and my uncle Bill, his brother, and uh, his wife, uh, Uncle Bill's wife, and Pauline, good were a good group to have around. They they would uh, they would talk about the Bible, and first thing you know, they'd be arguing about 
passages in the Bible. But, um, that's not what I'm, uh, I remember as, as being funny. But we would have um, Jehovah's Witness uh, people come by quite often. They come by to leave literature. A lot of those, the folks, uh, they're, they're serious about what they're doing and everything. They believe in their, their uh, all of their religious beliefs, but they weren't like dad's beliefs by any means. They want to leave literature. Some of them would want to just come in and leave literature, maybe uh, talk uh, some talking points for a few minutes and leave and go on down the road. But dad would always invite them in. Quite often, he would invite them in. The first thing you know, he'd have them in, a, in conversations about the Bible, and they would soon find out he knew an awful lot more about the <laughs> Bible than they did. <laughs> and uh, they would be uh, just uh, frothing at the bit to get on back out of the door and go down to somebody else where they could just leave some some literature. <laughs> he would hold them for uh, hours at a time. The first thing you know, he's preaching a sermon to them. So that's that's the first thing uh, that thing that I really remember that was most interesting about my father. Tell about Uncle, what's his name, coming down. Playing the fiddle on Saturday morning. Well, I'm Tom, and uh, my wife wants me to tell about Uncle John Stiles and how he played the fiddle. He was an odd character, and. Uh, he would come down to the house sometime on Saturday morning, probably around six o'clock, and uh, sit. We'd sit on the side of the rollaway bed in the living room where we, some of us slept sometimes. And uh, he played his fiddle, and all us kids just loved that. We got along fine with Uncle John, but. It sort of irked Mama a little bit because she wasn't quite ready to play the fiddle at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but Uncle John didn't really care what time it was. There was a story about him walking to Leola every, every week. He would uh, walk to Leola to buy his groceries from Brush Creek, about six, six and a half miles. Which is just a good stretch of the legs for Uncle John. And uh, the lady lived down the road from us, Miss Angelique Ford. She was, noticed things. And she noticed Uncle John coming by there every week. And he'd be wearing one shoe and one galosher. <laughs> and Miss Angelique held that for as long as she could possibly hold it, I'm sure. <laughs> but one day, she just couldn't stand it anymore, and she went out the side of the road and flagged Uncle John down and got to talking to him. People were sociable back then. And uh, she said, Uncle John said, I think she called him Mr. Stiles. Said, you know, said you come down through here every week, going to get your groceries. He had him a flyer sack with him, carried groceries in. He said, uh, but I noticed something that that makes me wonder. Said, I know it probably ain't none of my business, but I'm curious why you wear one boot and one galosher, one shoe and one galosher. And Uncle John, he was an odd character, like I said. He looked at Miss Angelie and he said, well, you're right, Angelie. It's not any of your business. <laughs> but, being as you want to know, I'll tell you. He said, you go down here a piece and got across Smoke Branch and said, it's just wide enough that you can't step across it, but you can wear one boot 
we step in the middle of it with a boot and step on across the other side on dry land with a shoe. And that's why I wear one boot, one shoe. And uh, that's just the kind of fella he was. He liked to play fiddle and he uh, didn't wear but one boot and one shoe when he went to town. And that, that what I remember about Brother John Stiles. <laughs> well, Uncle Jim, I think you had a story about holding on to a car. <laughs> okay. Well, as uh, most everybody probably knows, there was eight of us kids. Uh, we, uh, it was kind of a challenge for mother and dad, I know, try to keep us all in school and get us to college and everything else. Of course, I didn't have, they didn't have to worry about me on that, but um, we, uh, we lived at Brush Creek most of our lives and we moved to Arkadelphia one time because my brother Thurman and my sister Lorraine were both in college at the same time and we thought that'd save on a place for them to stay. And uh, somehow or other we'd ended up with a 60 model Falcon, that's what we had to drive. And my grandfather was a pretty good-sized fellow, and he, he had a stroke, and he took up a lot of room in the car. And while we was living there, we were still going to church at Brush Creek, so we'd go back to Brush Creek every Sunday. Was, on a couple of occasions, we uh, it was a little crowded in there for all the kids that were at home at the time to get in the car with Grandpa and Mother and Dad, too. So my brother Tom and I would sit out on the hood and hold on to the hood up by the windshield wipers and ride that 30-some-odd miles back from Arkadelphia to, to Brush Creek on the hood of the car while Daddy took the back roads to get us there where he wouldn't get out on the main roads to be seen by the state police or anybody. And uh, we thought it was fun, but uh, it seems a lot dangerous now. <laughs> <laughs> But there was a lot of lot of stories about cars, but I, I won't get into all those. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is one story I would love to hear, and I believe it's about Dad and Bill. It may be about Dad and Thurman and Jerry driving down the road. Let's get to Dad and Jim. That was me. <laughs> Tom may want to tell you that one. <laughs> Well, to tell that story, I think you need to tell the story about when you fought Jerry, just so everybody has a good idea about Uncle Jerry. Uncle Jerry is my mom's brother, and, uh, well, you can take it from there, Dad. Tell the story about you fighting Uncle Jerry. <laughs> He's not going to listen to it, I guarantee you. Hello, Jerry. <laughs> I'm not sure which one he's talking about, but I'll tell listen. One where he with the where he stepped on, you know? Yeah, he <laughs> We had uh, come back from Arkadelphia, we'd lived there for a, a school year. And I played basketball and and Jerry played basketball. Jerry was shooting up pretty fast. He was well over six foot tall. I was still five foot ten at that time. And I had to fudge a little. But I could handle the ball fair. And Jerry just wasn't much on handling the ball. He was just tall. So we come back from Arkadelphia and he came back from a place he had moved to that year in Holly Spring. And I went down to his house. He had a ball go. We were going to play ball. We got out back. And Jerry thought because he was so tall and he got to play main string at Holly Springs that he wouldn't have any trouble beating me playing basketball. Well, I had played in a triple-A school with some 
very good ball player, and I learned a thing or two. I could handle the ball, and I could move. And that's, for that reason, I could get around Jerry and make my shots. If I tried to shoot in front of him, he always blocked him. So I learned to go around him. And we played for about an hour, hour and a half. And I beat him every game. And he got a little irritated. He sort of felt it could get irritated. <laughs> in fact, he got plum mad. So we, I started back around the house, I was fixing to go home, and Jerry decided he couldn't play, beat me playing basketball, so he just whooped me. <laughs> well, he tackled me. We wrestled around there a while, and I've been playing football and basketball, and he wasn't no match. Didn't have any trouble with him much. Trying to be nice, we were rolling around on the ground there. I was mostly just holding him back. We got all tangled up there in the front yard. And Jerry got so mad, he, he couldn't find nothing else to hit me with, so he reached down and he wore them penny loafers with the big thick heels on them. He managed to get one of them off and get it in his hand. And why he wanted to hit me on the ankle, I don't know for sure, but he drew back and he hit himself on the ankle so hard <laughs> you could hear it for a quarter mile. And he squalled and yelled and rolled around out there on the ground till his mama come out the front door. And she wanted to know what was going on, and she gave me such a dirty look, I just picked up my stuff and I went on to the house right there. <laughs> now, this story about Jerry in the car, you say you're the one that has to tell that? I was the one driving the car. Well, I'd say you're the one that has to tell that then. Uh, we had a curve down the road that I call Wildcat Corner, which is a pretty sharp curve. Uh, International Paper Company had built a road going straight in that curve if you was going out of Leola toward Brush Creek. They built this gravel road out through there and had a little cattle gap there, but otherwise it was a pretty good old road. And um, everybody had always talked about how fast they could make that curve, you know, about 60 miles an hour is about the limit in most cases. And do it, you know, where you get around it without sliding off the road or anything. Because it's a, it's a 90 degree curve. Yeah, it is. Might be a little more than that. It wasn't really banked real well back then. No. And uh, I had taken the curve actually at 65 in that old Falcon I was driving. <laughs> but uh, I typically didn't do that with anybody in there with me unless maybe it was Thomas Lee. <clears throat> but um, Jerry, she said, You can't make a curve at 65. And I said, Yeah, I can. For some reason or other, we were going out to our house at Brush Creek, and Jerry and Tom were in the car. And I was going down there about 90 miles an hour on that straight stretch there in front of Dow's, and uh, the old car drew 92, that's as fast as it go. And I topped the hill doing 92, actually, and I said, I, th I think I can take it at 75. <laughs> he said, you can't do it. And of course, I slacked off a little bit, and... I left the road going straight on that curve at uh, about 75, 80 mile an hour, somewhere in that neighborhood. And Jerry, is, I, I, I would like to have a picture of his face as we was going. <laughs> I went straight in there and he thought was, he thought was going to try to make the curve. Because he had both hands on the dash and he had a bad look on his face. And Tom was just sitting back there laughing. I don't know. I think he already knew what I was going to do. He knew I wasn't stupid enough to try to make the curve at 75 mile an hour. <laughs> Jerry didn't know that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. Um, now, somebody had a story. I remember who. Jason has told it a couple times because it's one of his favorite stories about Uncle Bill, about how he would drive a church bus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
He would drive a church bus singing Are You Ready for the Judgment Day while doing 90, 90 miles an hour down back roads and stuff, scaring everybody inside. Actually, that was a, he was doing that in the Falcon. That was in the Falcon. <laughs> Famous car. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It went through a lot. <laughs> uh, we uh, left church one night in particular, uh, one evening late, and it was just about dark. Of course, Bill liked to drive really fast. Of course, I think all of us are pretty guilty of that. But uh, it was, we were packed. The car was full. Uh, me and Tom, Lorraine, and I don't know what was in there or not. Went over on the back roads over there off of, um, uh, on those paper company roads back in the, on the back side of Brush Creek over there. And Bill was going down through there. Of course, he drove those roads a hundred times. But he was doing about 80, 85. And he got to whipping the car back and forth. And Lorene went hysterical. She, she was screaming and hollering at him back there. And he started singing, Are you ready? Are you ready? While he was whipping it back and forth. <laughs> and then she really got hysterical. So <laughs> didn't faze him much. He went ahead and drove like he wanted to. <laughs> But he was guilty of that kind of stuff pretty regular. <laughs> yeah. Might mention that those uh, roads were gravel roads, Same plenty way. of gravels on the, on the side that you for sliding, and uh, they were one-way <laughs> roads. Yeah, one-way gravel <laughs> roads, what it was. <laughs> and there were hills, a lot, quite a hit, few hills. You, you never knew who was coming uh, from the other direction. Everybody ought to know me was driving those roads, huh? <laughs> you ought to know to stay out of the way well, now that was that was kind of shocking to me because to me Uncle Bill was always my quiet uncle Sandy was talking earlier about how I think Jimmy was her quiet uncle and Uncle Bill for me was always my quiet uncle to hear a story about him like that was pretty Different. I was wondering if y'all had any other stories that might enlighten me or anybody else to, you know, Bill's personality that he might have outgrown as he got older. <laughs> Can't think of any that he outgrew. <laughs> 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 but but um, he was, uh, I don't know that he was a quiet brother. He was an instigator. <laughs> he, he would... Um, he had a sense of humor, he, though. He had a sense of humor. He generally uh, organized uh, wrestling matches and fights uh, yeah. among the younger uh, boys, as well as um, as well as well as the boys in the neighborhood, including uh, Buddy Reeves, Harbordale Reeves, good examples, Orlando Dow, and sometimes um, Ben Basso and Jimmy Basso. Ben, ben Vasso and Jimmy Vasso, yeah. He would organize us to, and he, he liked, um, he really liked to organize a fight with, with Tommy and me because Tommy could always whip my tail, <laughs> especially if he piled another one or two boys on top. So that, that's, um, I think Bill, Bill did outgrow that uh, that tendency as he got older, but uh that was one of the things we had to live with. So he would just organize fights, just in the oh, backyard, or yeah, yeah, <laughs> just just to kind of tell him about the rope. And tear up, tear up the grass in the backyard, right? What? Tell him about the rope in the oak tree. Billy wanted us to climb. Well, I don't know. I tell you one thing about Billy. He was, a, I guess, he was a, the best. All around athlete in the, in the family because he could uh, wear a, a cable, actually a steel cable, I guess about be three quarter inch in diameter or something like that. Oak yeah. tree. It had to be 25 feet or 30 feet up and on, tied on a limb in the, the backyard. And it's slick as glass to me. And he had grip, really, really strong grip. And he could just go up and down that. Uh, that cable hand over hand, just about as fast as you could walk down the road. <laughs> uh, and he was uh, 
He, uh, we, we had a baseball team occasionally at Leola, and very, we never had a really organized baseball team. Well, we'd have summer baseball, and he was really strong. They called him, girls called him muscles. He had, he had big old arms, he was really strong. And uh, he really never played baseball before, but recruited him as a pitcher, I remember. And he would uh, throw a sidearm. And uh, he could, I swear, you know, he would start, the ball would start off low and end high, and it, it didn't appear to be sinking anywhere. <laughs> he was a quite an effective pitcher, even though he never had any practice in it. Because he threw really hard and threw that strange uh, sidearm. He was quite a quite a boy. <laughs> well, what about Ted? I haven't heard any stories about Ted. Well, I can tell you one. Uh, our two different two different situations. Both of them involved cars too. <laughs> it seems to be a revolving theme in your, your guys' childhoods. Uh, we had, uh, there was a guy down in Leola that barbecued every year. Had a big pit down there and he barbecued meat if you'd carry it to him. And uh, we carried, a, I think, a ham and I don't know what all down there, two, three different things for him to barbecue. <clears> and uh, Daddy sent Ted and down there to get it on the 4th of July, right before dinner. He'd stay down there, and the guy cooked all all day on the 4th. And he told Daddy he would be ready, you know, at such and such time. So he sent Ted down there to get it in the old 574 station wagon. And uh, we went and picked it up. Ted and I and Tom, and was you in there one? And Bob was in there. Bob was in there, yeah, Bob. Uh, <laughs> I his pants out there. He was the most vocal. He's coming back home anyway, and, and Ted attempted to make Wildcat Corner at 65 mile an hour. And succeeded, but he was sideways when he got stopped and uh, crossways in the road. And Bob was uh, white as a sheet, I remember that. <laughs> I was in the back seat, so I think Orlandale was in there too. He throwed Orland up against the uh, back glass and broke the back glass on <laughs> Or was that Billy did that? <laughs> Still the barbecue. <laughs> well, we ate it anyway. <laughs> Another time, I, I wasn't in there, but I, I understand he passed a state trooper coming out of Leola uh, doing about 70 miles an hour when he passed him in the city limits of Leola. And the state <laughs> trooper stopped him and said, man, said, didn't you see me? And he said, no, sir. Speed, speed he, was, he was blind. <laughs> <laughs> speed limit in Leola is approximately 35 miles an hour. Yeah, I think you're doing right. Was you in there with him when he passed the state trooper? I don't believe I was. I it may have been higher in the past, I don't know, but right now uh, it's 35. It was, it was probably in the 30s then. <laughs> but uh, he was coming through Leola. I think we'd probably been down to Henry Rogers to pick up some barbecue that day. And... Uh, I found out about that. Somebody told me about it. I don't know who was with him. It was Ted and someone else, maybe Lorraine. And uh, the uh, state trooper stopped him, and he told him, he said, I didn't see you. And he said, well, you realize the speed limit there, Leo? And he said, yes, sir. Didn't give him a ticket. I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, cops were a little different back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of these stories mentioned Orland Dahl. He seemed to be the only real casualty in, in <laughs> automobile wrecks that we <laughs> that had. Uh, I know that talking about the um, old Falcon we had, I think that was uh, salvaged with Orland's uh, teeth marks in the dash, if that's not, Still there. not mistaken. Uh, Jim, either Jim or Tom can tell the story of how that happened. Tom was driving that car. <laughs> you want to know how Orland Dow got his smile, huh? <laughs> well, I was 16 years old. I, first time I ever got to use the car by myself. Shouldn't have got it then. 
<laughs> Jimmy didn't want me to get it because he wanted it. No, I but, couldn't uh, go. I had an axe. Got stuck in with me with an axe that day. I couldn't walk. <laughs> but Orland was out at the house, and we were going to Leola, the big town, to mess around. And I'm not sure what we were going to do, but whatever we done normally. And we left the house. About a mile from the house is where Vernon Ford's place was. Big hill right before you get to Vernon Ford's. It was fall, I think. Cool weather. Not cold, but getting cool. Right at dark. Orland kept griping about it being cold in there. I said, well, check the window, see if it's down. He said, I think the one behind you is down. I was driving. Well, I wasn't doing it about saving me on that gravel road. <laughs> so I just turned around and started to roll the window up. <laughs> well, when I turned back around, lo and behold, we was in a ditch. <laughs> But it was a nice, long, flat ditch, and I didn't see no problem. And I said, well, I'll just ride this ditch out till I get down there to the curb by Barnum Fords, and I'll pull back up on the road and get slowed down a little. Well, that was working real good until I find out that Barnum Ford has put two cross ties across the ditch to stop the water. When I hit those, don't remember a whole lot about going across the road, but I'm pretty sure I didn't touch it. <laughs> Jumped the road sideways, hit head on into the ditch on the other side, which was on that side was about a four foot deep ditch, so I hit pretty solid, head on into that bank of dirt, and it irritated me a little bit to start with. I was trying to back up and I couldn't couldn't get the car to back up and I heard something when I sort of come to myself there and uh, it was oiling over gurgling and a hollering. And I said, You alright Orlin? And he just gurgled some more. So I looked over there and lo and behold he had blood all over his face. But he had left a permanent impression in that solid metal dash on that falcon with his front teeth. <laughs> so Orla got a new set of teeth out of it and I got removed from privileges for the falcon. <laughs> That's about it. I can't think of any story in my youth or childhood that amounts to anything compared to the <laughs> It was just a different time, and you guys got to live like the Dukes of Hazard on a daily basis. I don't understand. I just don't understand why, <laughs> why that was, but it's terribly interesting. It wasn't all roses. Jimmy had to rebuild a lot of transmissions and put in a lot of clutches. <laughs> well, tr truth is, the way we drove, uh, primarily my other brothers, drove on the uh, gravel roads around Brush Creek was probably criminal. <laughs> it's amazing that, that none of, nobody in our family died until old age, really. And uh, and nobody in the neighborhood got killed, got killed by us. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that, that's bothered me most of the rest of my life, that, that we did that kind of thing. I'll tell you one other story. <clears throat> Wait a minute. Yeah. Thurman's trying to put all the blame on the brothers. <laughs> I was getting Ask him about the 57 Chevrolet. <laughs> okay, what about the 57 Chevrolet? Being heard healed. I don't remember. <laughs> I remember another story about the Falcon on coming out there at um, Rolla. Where? You, you and Lorraine at Rolla. 
I did. I did run across the road. Basically, there was a, the road teed, and I was going faster than I should. But I was just paying attention. I plowed across the road and stopped on on the opposite side of the ditch. I did do I did do some damage to the Falcon there. I did have one time. Uh, <clears throat> My dad, when, when he'd come home from work, he'd always go out to the shop and he'd get his saws ready for the next day and I'd go out there and it was my job to help him mix the gas and everything, get it ready to go for the next day. And we had a window out in the shop where you could hear everything was going on and uh, Thurman had, uh, sometime or other, he'd stop down there on the bridge and just see how much that car had spent going across the bridge. And he left rubber all the way across the bridge. <laughs> Mr. Federal Wilson drove up in the yard down there one day. And Daddy, of course, he went out there to shake hands with him, met him about halfway to his truck. And I stayed out there in the shop and was getting the saws ready, cleaning the air filters and stuff. And I heard Mr. Federal say, uh, Chick said, I need to talk to you just a minute. He said, your boy's going to kill herself down there. He said, uh, you got one of them boys that stopped down there on that bridge and spins all the way across. He said, he's going to slide off that bridge. I just listened and kind of grinning, and I, he said, Daddy said, well, which one was it? He said, it's Jimmy. Me. <laughs> so, after that, every time I went uh, by his house, I stopped down there and spent all the way across the bridge. <laughs> and uh, one day I left the house, and I was in a big hurry. I was headed to the store to get some gas for the lawnmower or something, and I went flying down through there, and I got to the, just before I got to the bridge, of course, he lived just before I got to the bridge. And this chicken ran out in front of the road. I saw the chicken on the side of the road, and I slowed down, and I stopped. And the chicken ran across the road. And I started back up. The chicken came back across the road, and I ran over it. Miss Arley came out, and she um, proceeded to tell me how bad a driver I was and how I was going to kill everybody around and um, a few other things. And I said, well, you know, I stopped for your chicken. She said, I know you did, but you don't usually. That <laughs> <laughs> was a bad day, though, because I, I, I told her, I said, well, I'll pay for your chicken. I said, no, you won't either. I said, I'll carry him in the house. If there's anything left, I'll cook him. <laughs> and I, I got in the truck, and I eased across the bridge, and I eased around the curb, and I ran over Mr. Parrott's dog. <laughs> so that was a bad day. <laughs> Mr. Parrott was sitting on the porch so to my defense. He said, I saw, he said, you stopped for the dog. The dog had walked, I stopped, the dog walked out of the road, and he came right back in just as I started up again. <laughs> and broke his leg, it didn't kill it, so. Pretty lucky there. <laughs> so I believe the moral of that story is that the only way animals and people stayed alive Brush Creek was for boys to drive fast. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, the faster you go, the faster you get away from them. So. <laughs> i tell you one story that uh, I'm accept- I've, I've given the impression that Tommy and, and Jimmy were the people that drove fast and were really irresponsible, terribly irresponsible, I'd say, uh, <laughs> on the roads there on, in Brush Creek. I, I had did my share of it, too, I'd admit that. But the most dangerous thing I did, both to the residents of Brush Creek and to myself and some horse flesh as well, was uh, after I'd uh, spent my next to junior, years in, junior year in college in Fayetteville, University of Arkansas, uh, around money that semester, and I took a job with a, on a boy's ranch while I was, you know, to earn money while I was going to school. Uh, it was a boy, boy's ranch for um, wayward boys. You know, they all had records, but they weren't really terribly bad boys. They weren't really bad criminals, but they were mean as snakes and, and sneaking. Uh, uh, we we had a, a um, dormitory where I was a so-called counselor, okay? and they had the, the 
guy that ran the, the boys ranch, uh, you know, he lived in a separate house away from the action a little bit. But I lived in, in a dormitory with the boys and uh, we had, you know, just, I guess maybe 30, 40 bunks in there, just, just open, open house. I lived there, I made the uh, worst grades I ever made in my life that semester for sure. Uh, but the, it was a little ranch and we had, had um, horses and cows and stuff like that. And one of the things that, you know, was to rehabilitate the boys was, you know, they took care of those animals and uh, kept, up the, kept up the maintenance of the, of the farm. But we had a, a, um, an old retired racehorse up there. Uh, Thoroughbred racehorse called Glue Factory. <laughs> and she was, uh, she may have been retired, but she wasn't really out of action at all. She was really, really fast and she was really big. I don't know how. 15 hands. 15 hands, I guess, and about 15 hands wide. <laughs> and uh, she was a strong horse. But I was a cowboy. You know, we got, we had a Cherokee blood in us. But my problem was I kind of forgot that Grandpa Gifford, my Grandpa Gifford had, uh, was a quarter Cherokee and Dad was an eighth Cherokee and I wasn't but a sixteenth Cherokee. And I often forgot that fact. <clears throat> so I figured I would probably handle any horse in the world. Uh, when I left the boys' ranch there, I, I bought that horse, brought it home. So put it out in the pasture there in Brush Creek. And uh, hardly ever, I was kind of scared of her, to be honest with you. But I, I never really did anything. Until one day, I decided, though, I'd, I'd ride her. Okay? And so I went out in a, in a pasture, and uh, we didn't have a saddle or anything like that. And I, I, I was going to put a bridle on her, but I don't think we had a bridle, but I didn't think we needed anything about it. To have that horse, I didn't need anything but a halter being a Cherokee Indian. And um, I, I got on that horse and rode down, rode her down to the store. Now I guess the store was a mile and a half away from our house. Mile. A mile uh, down the gravel road. There are plenty of curves in, in it and a few little hills in it. Uh, and I rode her down. She was just as gentle as a lamb down to the store. And I got, I don't know what I got, but I got probably got some candy or something, I don't know. And it started heading her back home to the house. And uh, just as a little bit of a aside, I tell you that uh, on the side of our house, we had a little carport made out with a tin, tin roof. It was just a lean-to shed on the side. And it was about... I don't know, 15 hands plus um, maybe six inches <laughs> tall, and and the lipper was was a steel, just just a steel knife blade basically. Uh, and uh, I, I got trotting her trotting her on home. I decided to get her up a little speed, so I got her going a little bit faster and a little bit faster. But I didn't really want to go, you know, like a race for a thoroughbred, but after, after a while she broke loose right out in the middle of that gravel road, about, about the cemetery, which is only about two or three hundred yards from the store, she was full speed. And she was going around the, going around the curves, she didn't like the side of the road. She went right in the middle of the road, as fast as she could go, and I was pulling back and you know, trying, I assumed I could control her for quite, quite a while there, but two or three seconds and then before I really learned it I wouldn't any way I go control her. I pulled back as hard as I could on that halter and and she didn't even feel it. So finally I just had to grab I wasn't that good at, at uh, riding a horse in the first place. Never had ridden very much at all. So I just grabbed her mane and leaned over on her and, and just kind of prayed and she took she was full speed, fast as race horse can go round the curves in the middle of the road, all the way from the, basically all the way from the store, all the way to home. And then when I, when I got, we got to the uh, driveway to our house, she made a 90 degree turn. She was coming home to the barn. 
She's a little ticked off at me, though, I think, because she headed off, she headed up the driveway, still at full speed, and headed straight for that lean-to shed. And uh, she ran up under that thing at, at high speed and just stopped. And I was laying there, my head down on her neck, and, and um, trembling, and I just kind of fell off of her. And I never rode that horse again. She became glue, I think, pretty soon thereafter. I thought I was dead, though. And, and it could have easily... It would have been as bad as a wreck against the Falcon, I think. <laughs> Thurman neglected to tell the story of how we got Glue Factory. He bought the horse at the boys' farm up on the top of the tallest hill up there in the old Lark Mountains, I think. In Winslow, Arkansas. And we had to go get the horse. So wasn't no big deal. We was, you know, 8th Cherokee or whatever, 16th, a little over. <laughs> Grandpa was 3 eighths. Daddy was a little more and uh, so we just got busy and we built us some sideboards out of some old lumber we had nailed it together I think put it on the back of a, an old 61 Ford pickup daddy had <laughs> and we headed off up there to Fayetteville to get that horse took a while to get there we got up on top of the hill and had to go catch the horse. And I think it took all the boys' club to corner that horse and get her where we could load her in a chute. And uh, the old boy that was running the horse show up there said, How y'all going to get that horse home? <laughs> I said, We got a truck, got sideboards. Load her up in the truck, take her home. He said, well, I just wondered. He said, old boy brought her up here. He had a set of iron pipe sideboards. And she kicked them off down to the bottom of the mountain. He had to lead her up here. <laughs> well, it didn't faze us none. We got her loaded up in the truck. But she wouldn't stay still, so... I had to get up on top of the truck and hold her nose while Thurman drove down the hill. As a matter of fact, I think probably halfway home or better, maybe all the way home, I don't know. I rode on top of that truck and held that horse's head while Thurman drove. But we got her home. <laughs> I don't remember that. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember that. I, I remember, remember it well. <laughs> I remember y'all bringing her back to the sideboards on that truck. The horse barely fit me. Head of the truck. Yeah. Had to stand crossways from one corner to the next. <laughs> I was a little more game than Thurman when it came to riding Glue Factory. Hmm. Fact is, she was my only mode of transportation. After you wrecked the Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> After I wrecked the Falcon. <laughs> and I had a girlfriend down here in Leola. Live right across the road here at my church, named Shirley Joy Lamb. And Shirley Joy raised Shetland ponies. Her daddy did for a living, partly. They raised high-bred Shetlands. And she was quite the little horse lady. I thought I'd impress her and ride Glue Factory down here. <laughs> Six and a half miles, I think. I finally got old Glue Factory saddled up. I think I had a saddle in. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. I don't know. Now, Jimmy said I didn't have a saddle. Jimmy's shaking did. his head. <laughs> well, Glue had Factory. A bridle. Had a bridle. Had a bridle. With chain bits one time. <laughs> Glue Factory was a little bit headstrong. I got her headed out from a house 
headed down the gravel road. About three-quarter of a mile down there, there was a cutoff road that went from one county road to the next, and I was going to go down it. Well, I found out by the time I got there that glue factory liked to run full speed. And the only way you could turn the horse was to pull her nose around and touch her shoulder with it. And then she'd run sideways, but she would turn some. <laughs> well, she ran full speed from Brush Creek to Leola, nonstop. It wasn't always slower down. You could turn her a little bit, so when I got to that road, I turned her. And I got down to the other county road, I turned her to the left. Then we got down to the state highway, had to turn right, black not made that turn. And then we headed to Leola. Well, I thought to myself, oh gal, if you want to run, we'll just let you run. So I just whooped her a little bit, and we took off. We got into Leola, come right down through the middle of Leola Main Street, right down the yellow line, wide open. We got down to the intersection of the road that turns Carthage 229, and I pulled her nose around, touched her shoulder with it, and she slid sideways into that curb, we got on down here to where I turned off to Shirley Joy's house, done the same thing. And this horse was sweating and frothing and carrying on, snorting. And when I got to Shirley Joy's house at the next corner, I pulled her nose around there. She turned right up in Shirley Joy's yard. But, she didn't stop till she got to the front porch, which was surrounded by about six foot wide flower beds, <laughs> which she proceeded to stomp all of. <laughs> and when Shirley Joy's mama heard the ruckus, she come out on the front porch and she just looked at me and she looked at that horse and she shook her head and turned around and walked back in the house. I don't think that date went well. <laughs> Shirley Joy might want her name redacted from that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody else? We better go because there's probably people out there wanting us to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we do this next year. Uh, we'll get our story together. <laughs> okay. So these stories may end differently next year. You never know. <laughs> well, hopefully, I'll have a little better recording equipment because we're getting. The